sing for joy. Shout aloud with a voice of praise. Come, let us give Him thanks. Worship Him with our music and song. For the Lord is great. For the Lord is King. So come, let us bow. Oh, come, let us bow down and worship. Hey! 
What to do with that awkward airtime? Oh boy. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see y'all here. Um, so glad to see your kiddos starting to come back little by little into our nursery, kids, grandkids. We uh, are looking forward to um, just giving them as much Jesus as we can. We've been trying to do that through our online uh, videos on Sunday mornings. Uh, Casey Carnley and Megan Brevard, they have been amazing in, in doing message-based crafts, message-based discussions, since we we're, we're haven't been able to meet with your children in the classroom. But we still, it's so important for us, even through this crazy, awkward season, that they are still getting the truth of Christ the truth of his, God's love for them. And, um, and I'm waving these books around also just to, to come alongside of what Megan and Casey are doing on Sundays. And I'm doing team, uh, team kid lessons on Wednesdays. What we're doing for this season through December, as we still haven't full on come on with our Wednesday night programming, is that our ministry, my ministry budget has bought one of these uh, devotion books for every family of a kinder through fifth grader. Unfortunately, these have been on back order. They were supposed to have arrived on Friday, which I was super excited, but they didn't show up. So hopefully soon, this will be in the hands of your family. However, hold on. These books for our preschool families have arrived, and I have them here. You can pick up your copy on your way out today, and it's a board book. It's a complimentary, kind of a companion book to this other that I showed you. I am the names of God for little ones. So, y'all, it is not, they are not too young to learn. We're building those foundations. We're partnering with you as you build those foundations within your home, and we want to help you do that. So this resource is, is um, here, and just find me after the service, and I'll make sure your family gets one. So we just love your children and are looking forward to that day when we can be back together in-house, which I know for this season, you've probably noticed the check-in is different. We're just trying to be extra diligent and extra careful in this um, crazy season. And um, we appreciate your... Um, I guess your cooperation, your understanding, as we do make some changes within our child care, that's been going great. Uh, and so we thank you so much for, for entrusting us with your kids, my nursery staff, our Bible study leaders. Of course, that'll be rolling up again in January. Um, so it's been a slow process, but a methodical one, and one that we're putting a lot of prayer and a lot of thought into. So thank you again, and I wanted to share these books with you. And just let you know kind of what's been going on in our preschool and children's ministry. Why don't we just open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we get to worship together, first of all. That we have that freedom and that liberty, Lord, to meet together. Lord, even for those at home worshiping online. Father, what a community you have really given us. And we are so thankful and so appreciative for the body here at Carpenter's Way. Lord, I just pray for our families. This verse has just kind of been coming to my mind, Lord, just that what you say in Philippians 2, 13, that, God, that you are at work. You give us the desire and the power to do what pleases you. And I know right now some of us, we're tired. 
we've had a lot going on, a lot of distraction. That desire for you may be lost or may be wavering right now. Father, I just pray that you would continue your work like you say you, you will and that you do and that you would give us that desire to follow you, give us that desire to be in your word. God, help us to hunger to know you, not just know about you, but to know you through life experience. And yeah, that can be a little scary, but God, we can trust you. As we're teaching our children and team kid 40 reasons to trust you, you've given us a million reasons to trust you. And God, just help us. We seek you and we love you and we thank you in advance for the work you're doing in each of our families, in our Bible study classes here at Carpenter's Way, in our youth, program-wide, Lord, just have your way. Have your way. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. shelter in you my God and there you give me rest you are my refuge and my safe place my strength is in your name and though I stumble you won't let me fall Oh, I stop. 
in your grace and I praise your great name oh I stand in your grace and I praise your great name oh I stand in your grace and I Perfect in 
can hardly speak peace so unexplainable I I can hardly think as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still into love 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 you're a good good father it's who you are it's who you are it's who you are and i'm loved by you it's who i am it's who I am, it's who I am, you're a good, good father, it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am, you're a good, good father, it's who you are who you are it's who you are and i'm loved by you it's who i am it's who i am it's who i am come let us sing to the lord let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He holds in his hands the depths of the earth and the mightiest mountains. The sea belongs to him for he made it. His hands formed the dry land too. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God. We are the people He watches over, the flock under His care. If only you would listen to His voice today. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears And you meet us in our mourning With the love that casts out fear You are working in our waiting You're sanctifying us And beyond our understanding You're teaching us to trust Your plans are still to prosper You have not forgotten us You're with us in the fire and the flood Oh, you are faithful forever you're perfect in love, you are sovereign over us. 
You are wisdom unimagined. Who could understand your ways? Reigning high above the heavens. Reaching down in endless grace. You're the lifter of the lonely. Compassionate and You surround and you uphold me, and your promises are my delight. Your plans are still to prosper, you have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood, oh, you are faithful forever. You're perfect in love, you are sovereign over us. And even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. And even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good and for your glory. And even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. And you turn it for our good. Your glory, even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good, you're working for our good, and for your glory, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us, you're with us in the fire and the flood. Oh, you. Forever, you're perfect in love, for you are sovereign over us. Your plans are still to prosper, and you have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood, for you are faithful forever. You're perfect in love, for oh, you are sovereign over us. And when peace like a Attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whoa. 
I get that. If, uh, if you are well and healthy and at low risk and, and, and at home, you're missing out here and God's people sing. Man, it's such, such a reminder that it is well with our soul. And I want you to, I want, I, most of you are aware 
of the author of that song, Horatio Spafford. Uh, the truth of the song is he only wrote this first verse. And through the ages, others added to, that, uh, to this amazing song that the church loves. Uh, and uh, you know that he was on his way to work with D.L. Moody in Europe after the great Chicago fire. He, uh, D.L. Moody went over there to preach and to minister, and he was working, he was rebuilding Chicago, and he sent his wife and his kids ahead, and the, the ship that they were on sunk, and uh, so on his way to, to, to Europe to be with D.L. Moody, over that spot where the, the ship went down, the captain woke him up, and he wrote, he penned that first verse, uh, when, when sorrow like sea billows roll, and, and through the centuries, Others have written and added verses onto it. And the reason is, is because no matter what we think about our lives, pain in the life of a believer is not new. It's not new. Uh, maybe the story has changed. Maybe the scary thing has changed. But whether you lived in the Soviet era or the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the United States, or you were a follower of Jesus in 70 AD when Rome ransacked Jerusalem, it has always been a scary lot in this world because of what happened in the garden. And our only hope has always been Jesus. It is not the Republican Party. It's not the Democrat Party. It's not living in a democratic republic. If America goes socialist, we are still with the same hope that we had. And uh, I, uh, I think that one of the things that I hope happens in our study of Acts is that you begin to realize that, man, they had the exact same struggles we did. They had the exact same frustrations, the exact same problems, and the exact same God. He's a good God. He can be trusted, no matter what your circumstances tell you, He can be trusted. Uh, so follow Him, run to Him. Radic radical commitment to His ways. Um, if I can take a moment, and, and, and before uh, I, I move into our text this morning, uh, we are so blessed at Carpenter's Way. Julie and I, as you know, have been gone for a couple weeks and uh, on vacation. The first week we were in New Mexico, and I know Julie posted some pictures of New Mexico. And when we were sitting on the mountain there in a house, we watched uh, Zach preach. And uh, then last week we were in Colorado, and we sat and we watched Chad preach. And we worshiped with you even digitally. It's a pretty cool thing to be able to do. But I was thinking this week as I came back, how blessed we are. We had an elders meeting this week and we prayed together and we discussed together where the church is and in this time of history. And I just want you to know how blessed we are as a church to have such great leaders, such great teachers. Uh, our mission investment team continues to find ways to take monies that we have not used this year and send it across the globe and even locally to, to help expand the gospel. What a cool thing is going on. Don't you believe the hype, the things that the church is being defeated? The church is, a, the real followers of Jesus are more committed to him than they have ever been. And I want to encourage you to join us. I don't mean Carpenter's Way necessarily or, or just in this building. You have to be wise with your family, but don't be afraid. Live in hope for the Lord. Join us. We are so blessed. I, I, was, I, I so enjoyed Zach's uh, discussion of the ascension. Um, and reminding us that Jesus Christ not only went before us on the cross and died on the cross for our sins, but he went before us in, into heaven. And that our hope is there. He's there before us. He's preparing a place for us. What a wonderful thing to remember, even while the world seems to be going 
to hell in a handbasket. I will figure out what that means someday, but I get the concept. And then Chad last week to open the Word of God and, and to take some time. And I, 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 I love that Chad opened the Word of God about the Holy Spirit. Chad, as you know, and as he shared last week, grew up in a Pentecostal bending, a charismatic setting, and here he is at Carpenter's Way. And, you know, one of the frustrations I have with the church is the Baptist Holy Spirit only convicts us of our sin. The charismatic Holy Spirit gets us to worship more intensely and in different ways. And, you know, he's in the middle of that. We worship in spirit and in truth. And I thought it was exceptional to hear Chad open the Word of God, especially Romans chapter 8, to talk to us about the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the power of God is within us. You know, we've been studying for almost two years the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And it's easy for us to go, man, I wish I could just tap him on the shoulder and ask him questions. But you know, it didn't make them any better. They still struggled. I mean, life, they, they, they still wrestled with him. And then he ascended into heaven. And he actually said he had to go so that someone better would come. And that was the Holy Spirit. You don't have to tap Jesus on the shoulder to ask him questions. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. The very power of the resurrection of God lives within you. Own it. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. And trust him. You can talk. You don't have to just talk to Jesus. Dear Jesus, help me today. Dear Father, help me today. We pray to the Father. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. You can talk to him. He's right there. He knows what's going on. So don't be afraid to reach out to him. And I, I, I just uh, wanted to, to tell you as we, as we continue through this path, and you know um, what Alicia was talking about is we're looking at fully opening up in January and between now and then looking at unique ways to minister and bring us together. We're very excited that starting this Wednesday night, our student ministry is going to begin regathering Second Wind. Uh, we're going to try to keep it, the group smaller. So one week is going to be junior, uh, middle school, and the next week will be high school. And you can go to the Second Wind page or email Jeff about that if you need which week is which. I think it starts with middle school this Wednesday night. Same time as it used to be, 6.30 until 8 in the student room. So that'll be on campus. Uh, and then adults, we're going to start a new Bible study on Wednesday night, online though. Uh, and part of the reason is because we don't have child care. The other reason is Zach Wilkie, my son, and I are going to co-teach it. He'll be in Dallas, and I'll be here, and uh, we are going to do it on Zoom. And I know a lot of you have been on Zoom. The rest of you are terrified of even the concept. So uh, if you are interested in being part of that, we, we put it online this week because you need to let us know if you're interested in being a part of that, and we'll send you an email invite to that so you can join us. That way we keep anything inappropriate from being on. <clears throat> Sorry, that's Zoom. Um, but if you, will, if you will send me an email, I will send you an invite and I'll even tell you how to get on there with us. We've got 41 people as of this morning already signed up. So we're going to have a great time in God's Word and everybody gets to participate. And what we're going to do is it's going to be super practical. We're going to talk about how what we know about God matters at this time in history. Uh, the attributes of God, why do they matter in 2020? Why, why do they matter? These are, we're going to ask, we're going to deal with questions that maybe you think about or don't think about, but, but deserve an answer. Uh, what, uh, so we'll, we'll get more into that. We're going to answer the question over the six or seven weeks. Does the church influence the world or is the world influencing the church? Uh, we're going to direct that. What should it be? How did God design it? So we're very, very excited about that. Um, he's crazy. I'll rein him in. Uh, but we'll have a great time in God's Word together. So if you are interested in joining us out, whether you're part of Carpenter's Way or not, just email me at mark at cwbc.org, and we will make sure that you get uh, on that list. Or if you forget that, you can just uh, 
He just emails. All right, Acts chapter 1. Let's pray and let's jump into our text. Father, we thank you for your word that never returns void. I thank you for the two weeks of break that Julie and I got and the refreshment we got, but I have been very, very excited to preach this message. It, it, partially because it's a text we never talk about, but the implications for us are just, they're wonderful. Um, so speak to us, Lord, and I pray for myself. Lord, I am a sinful vessel, so I pray that the light of Jesus would shine through, that the words of Mark would fade away so that the words of God would endure forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of you are aware that I grew up in San Diego, California. Uh, when I was 17 years old, the Lord called me into the ministry, and my training was to be in Chicago, Illinois, at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, Chicago, Moody Bible Institute is literally downtown Chicago in the heart of the city. Been there for almost a couple hundred years uh, for various reasons. But the truth is, what you don't know, most of you, is I had never been farther east at that point than Arizona. The only time when I was 17 that I went to, flew to Chicago, the day I flew to Chicago, the only time I had ever seen snow was maybe an inch of it when we would go up uh, into the mountains over San Diego called the Laguna Mountains, and we would go up there if we caught it right. And I remember as a kid in our station wagon, we had these, you know, the one with the wood fake siding? Okay, that's the one. Uh, and we had rubber mats in there. And I remember if there was a, a hillside with enough snow, and most of it, it was like a snowstorm in the Laguna Mountains most of the time was like a snowstorm in East Texas. Anything white and we shut everything down. But I remember at times going up there and my dad talking with my mom about whether or not we had chains. You know, you need chains to go around up here when we didn't. But we would get up into the mountains and I remember if you would find a, a side of a hill that had enough white on it, my dad would grab the rubber mats and we would go up that hill and we would get on those rubber mats and we'd try to slide down. And we would scrape our pants and we would get muddy, but we would pretend like we had, you know, toboggan down a hill or something. But that was the farthest east I had ever been. Arizona. I mean, I don't mean deep into Arizona. I don't even remember as a kid going to the Grand Canyon, although my parents will tell me I did. I was an infant. But I just had never been east. And I remember the day that I, was, I got on the plane. I had had friends over the night before, and my mom and dad and I uh, were in the car heading to the airport, and I remember thinking, uh, saying goodbye to my parents. I remember actually telling my dad that I think probably I'm going to Chicago to be in ministry, and I don't know where the Lord's going to take me from there, but it will not be San Diego. I will, I, I, I will be going to Chicago to Moody Bible Institute. I will graduate from there, and I will go immediately into ministry, but I will probably not come home uh, except for uh, visits and whatnot. And from, actually, that was exactly right. From Chicago, after I graduated, Julie and I got married, and we moved to Wisconsin where we started serving. And from Wisconsin, we moved to Michigan, and Michigan to Ohio, and from Ohio to here. You're the other end of that. Sorry. You're going to watch me get old and die right here. I mean, it's, but I remember that morning, and, and I remember something, and, and, and at 17, you're too stupid to know what that thing is, but you do know that things are changing. And I remember being so excited to get to Chicago, a place I'd never been and seen only very few pictures of. I had never visited Moody Bible Institute. I went to a Campus Life Christian College Fair. I applied. They accepted me, and that was it. That was the only conversation I had had with Chicago, Illinois. And my dad had friends or family, somebody, we are originally, my dad's side is originally from Indiana, and I don't even remember to this day who they were, but my dad had arranged for a family member, a cousin who lived in Indiana, who were happening to be in Chicago at that time to pick me up at the airport and drop me off at Moody. That's exactly what they did. It was like a 40-minute drive, and we had nothing in common to talk about. 
We threw, we threw my suitcases in the back of this vehicle. I don't even remember the drive. I just remember wetting myself and needing to change three or four times. And they drop me off. They take me downtown to a city that's nothing like San Diego. And they drop me off in front of this archway where there's signs, welcome students, and it tells me where to go. But I had never been there. Ever been there. And I was super excited when I started seeing the girls in line. But... I was a little bit terrorized inside. That's what, that's what I was feeling, an excitement of what was about to happen. I was ready to serve the Lord. I was ready to move on with adults, and I was ready to find a wife. And I met her the third day of school at an ice cream social. She came over to me, to be honest with you. But, but I, I was so excited about being there, but I was also terrorized. Something weird happened. I remember to this day, I was wearing gray corduroys, don't ask, and and I, I was such a California kid. I had those uh, leather shoes that were, uh... no, I wasn't that hip. <laughs> I wore tough skins back then. Uh, I just, anyway, uh, I just saw some the other day for sale again. I wanted to buy them, but they were $200. Anyway, I just, I remember sitting down on the American Airlines plane, sitting in the chair going, what the heck am I about to do? Now, don't get me wrong. I knew that when I got into my room, I had paid my phone bill. There were still the phones on the wall. For those of you who are millennials, we used to attach our phones to walls. <laughs> but, but I remember I could call them, but I couldn't call out to them. I couldn't ask my mom to make me a sandwich, or I couldn't ask my dad for $20. I was kind of on my own. I mean, I knew I could talk to them, but I, I couldn't see them. And so it was wonderful that I was about to embark on this new life that, that was exciting, knowing that something great was about to come. But it was scary because there was a new life that while something great was about to come, I didn't know if I'd pass classes. I wasn't that smart. I had a learning disorder that I wasn't aware of at that time. I had heard that most people don't make it through the first Old Testament survey class. I was kind of scared. I was alone. And I wondered this week, or the last two weeks, because I've been thinking about this text, I wonder in a way if that is how our brothers and sisters felt immediately after Jesus ascended into the clouds in Acts chapter 1. They knew something exciting was about to happen because not only had Jesus told them, but the angels had told them. But they were also terrified because something gravely different was taking place. And it is with that in mind, and I, I, I want to clarify, because I've had people share mixed emotions about Acts, okay? So we're going to spend 13 years in Acts now. Um, listen, the thing from Acts is, this is what God does through people who, I, I actually, this week I wanted to change the name of the series. I'm not going to. From the body to life without Jesus. Because most people's ears would perk up. <gasps> that should never happen. You should never walk without Jesus. But that's how they felt. I mean, they had literally walked with Jesus for three and a half years, and now they're walking without Jesus. That doesn't mean he's not present, but I think that must have been how they felt. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Right after the ascension, right after the angels tell the uh, people that are there watching Jesus ascend to go back to Jerusalem, it tells us in verse 12 that the, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is where he ascended, a distance of a half mile. And when they arrived, so we know the timing, so they walked back to Jerusalem. I don't know if it was a loud walk or a quiet walk. 
I'm not sure that they, we know what they were thinking, but what we do know is that when they arrived back in Jerusalem, they went up to the, to, to the upstairs room of the house that they were staying. Okay, so now we know what the apostles were doing. We're going to find in a few verses that there's actually 120 that gather, but for the most part, this is the house that the apostles are now living in. Why would they live in a house together? Well, where else are they going to go? This is most likely the same room that they met for in the upper room at the night of Jesus' betrayal. This is most likely the same room that they hid in after Jesus was dead. This is most likely the same room that Jesus walked through the wall after the resurrection or the door after the resurrection of. This was the place they gathered. So they go there and they stay there. And when they get back to Jerusalem, they meet in that upstairs room. What else are they going to do? Here are the names of those who were present. There was Peter and John and James and Andrew and, and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James. What else are they going to do? They all met together. And the Greek is a little bit better than the English on this. It says that they continually met together. They didn't just meet once. If you're just reading it, you get a sense here that they're reading it, they're just, they just meet once. But it says that they actually continually met together and they were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So it wasn't just the apostles gathering. It was others too, followers of Jesus. And I wondered the last couple of weeks as I thought about this text and was really excited. Chad and I had talked about maybe him preaching this text. I'm so glad he didn't because I really am excited about this. But I wonder what these regular con cons constant gatherings were like. This, this wasn't a program that somebody had designed. This was not the behavior of followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus, most of which were still Jewish, still gathered in synagogues. I want to remind you at this time, and, and, and the reason this is such a cool text is because we usually jump to the, from the ascension to Pentecost. That's the normal behavior of the evangelical church, as, this, as if the life of the apostles and the followers of Jesus were only made up of big moments. In between huge moments, there were quiet moments. There were weird moments, and this is a weird moment. And it tells us how they behaved. If we want to be like the New Testament church, gather. They gathered, though, not because some pastor had programmed it or they came up with this great idea to meet once a week, but it had become a natural necessity of their new lives, their lives outside of the physical presence of Jesus. This is actually an odd group of people from what we know of them. In the next verse, as I've already mentioned, you're going to find out that there was 120 of them that were meeting on a regular basis. 120. They were made up of men and women, ordinary people, apostles, even members of Jesus' own family, which tell us that not everybody in that room had long followed Jesus. Might I remember you that even into the last year of Jesus' life, his brothers were still mocking him. The Passover, right before his last Passover, so a year before Jesus dies on the cross, you remember that his family were mocking him and telling him, why don't you do some of those magical tricks in Jerusalem if you want a big following? That's how you'll gather a crowd. They were mocking him. And Jesus said, no, because it's not my time to be killed. You go on to Jerusalem because you don't say anything that offends people. But if I go there, they're going to kill me. And now they've become followers. Do you know, it tells us that one of Jesus' brothers actually becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. We'll see that in Acts. That brother was mocking Jesus right up until the crucifixion you're going to find. 
The crucifixion and resurrection changed even his family relationships. They became followers of Jesus. And they're in this upper room. Some were from wealthy backgrounds, some from poverty. Not all that were in that room, we believe, were Hebrews. And as I had already mentioned, not many were followers very long. The Greek says in verse 14 that they gathered and prayed in one accord. That not not just their prayers, but also their purpose for gathering was unified. They were united in something that led to united prayer. The spirit of their gathering was was of one purpose. You see, despite having different life purposes, and I need you, especially those of you online, I need you to hear this very carefully. Despite having different life experiences, different salvation stories, different political or national interests at this time, and even different historical sins, We are not all alike in our sin struggle. Some of us are murderers. Some of us are adulterers. Some of us struggle or don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Jesus came to save sinners. Some were tax collectors. Some were uh, rejected by the Jews. Some were loved by the Jews. The fact is that they had one thing in common. It was not their sin. It was not their experience. It was Jesus. That's all they had in common. There were Romans in this room. They were not fans of the Jewish nation, but that's not what they were unified around. They didn't come together to figure out how to make Jews, Hebrews great again. little pun on, prop, on modern politics. The reason the church gathered, or let's call them the, uh, the fetus church, because this isn't the church yet. The reason they gathered is because they had Jesus in common. Even Mary's in the room. And I want to say something about Mary. My Protestant brothers and sisters, I feel like, we, and I've told you this before, we don't respect Mary enough out of fear of being too Catholic-like. But now I'd like to say something to my Catholic friends. Mary was chosen for a specific task, just like you and I. That's all. She never went around healing people. She was not chosen for her wealth, her fame, her beauty, her talent, or even her proximity to Jesus. She was chosen by God for a specific purpose, and that is to carry him for nine months and support him during 33 years of life and ministry. That was her chosen purpose. Nowhere in Scripture is she ever given more authority or power to do more than her task. She was a forgiven and retooled sinner, just like you and I. And without our Lord's choosing, she simply would have been another Jewish girl living in Nazareth under the heavy-handed Roman government, which in reality probably would have made her life less painful. I say that for this. As we move farther into Christendom today, we seem to have more and more of our spiritual heroes doing silly things or sinful things. No matter what comes out of their their post-life stories, or later in life stories. They were never to be our heroes. We don't have Ravi Zacharias in, in, in unison. That doesn't unify us. John MacArthur's view on California law. Mark Wilkie's opinion on the political agenda of our country. We don't have Donald Trump in common. We have Jesus in common. That's it. We didn't all come out of homosexual lifestyles. We're not all cowboys. And i got to tell you something. As we try to be, I don't know what the word is, safe, the church is fragmenting now 
into personal wants and likes. That church is great for children. This church is great for cowboys. If you like country music, that's the place to go. If you are a hipster, go to the hipster church. That was never why they gathered. They gathered in this upper room out of desperation and unity. And not because they needed to find a community, but because they gathered as a community who had Jesus in common, who had saved them where they were, whether they were a tax collector or they were the mother of Jesus. That's it. And we are, as we continue down the path of a capitalistic country, whatever that looks like in the coming years, the church was never, ever, ever supposed to be a commodity. The church is a gathering of desperate people who put their hope in God. These people didn't gather because they liked each other, because they liked how each other spoke, because they liked how each other looked. These people gathered because they had placed their hope in God just like the other 119 people in that room. That's it. That's why they gathered. It wasn't part of the culture. It wasn't part of the community. It was what they needed. You see, life without Jesus' presence is still life with God present. And they gathered to remind each other that God was still on His throne and to pray. To pray. This was a group of ordinary, adopted, and forgiven sinners with one thing in common. They had been adopted through Jesus' blood into God's family, and that changed their whole value system. Even how they valued what they did, who they met with, and what they were drawn to. I guess I asked myself this last week, and I'm asking you this morning, if you had been in the New Testament times, would you have been part of the 120? Now, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something now, and, and, and Zach Wilkie's going to push back. And many of you may push back, Kip Havard. But I just want to say this. I wonder, Mark, Bible student, not pastor for a second, why were there only 120? I want to remind you that there were hundreds more who saw the resurrected Christ. Others even saw him ascend. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't follow Jesus, but it says they continually met this 120. Where are they? I know that they're in Jerusalem, probably. I know they're getting ready for the Judas Festival of Pentecost. I know all those things, but I don't know why they're not part of the gathering group. And all I can personally conclude is that there always have been hundreds who claim and thousands who claim to be true Jesus followers, but when the rubber hits the road, there's really only few. I don't know why they're not there. Maybe there's a good excuse. But I am here to ask you this morning, based upon your behavior over the last year in this time of terror, where did you go for hope? Where did you go for hope? Don't answer it from your head. Answer it from your experience. Where did you go this last year for hope when COVID thought you thought you were going to lose your parents or maybe your kids or your life? When, when, when the uh, political thing, and I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, it's going bad for both groups. doesn't matter who wins. This country is in bad, bad shape. The hate rhetoric that is coming out of social media. Uh, Julie and I, I, I didn't post while we were on vacation much because I just don't feel like being on there. It's ugly. And that's one of the reasons why you got 15 text messages from me this week in an email. I am sorry for those of you who got 11. I don't know what happened. It was the devil. The devil made it happen. But uh, 
One of the reasons we're going to be sending more emails to you is because we've been depending on social media, specifically Facebook and Instagram, and we're going to still put it on there, but I don't want you leaning on that. And I know a lot of people are leaving it. Good for you. Your life will be better. Now cut down on your news watching. I mean, so you want me to be ignorant? Only if you put your hope in God. He is our hope. Not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a thin-skinned loudmouth who does some good things as a conservative. But I got news for you. If you think Joe Biden is the answer to all your prayers, wow, you need to pray deeper. It's a mess, you guys. So much hate. And the church is invested in it. We do not gather because we agree politically. The evangelical church shouldn't vote in unison. That's not who we are. We are people who have one thing in common. Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's it. That's all we got in common. You can be black, white, brown, yellow, green, red, orange, or blue. You have, if you are that, then we have to gather. If you are scared, I'm not pushing you to come back to Carpenter's Way right now. I'm just saying, you need fellowship. Knowing in your head who God is isn't enough. You've got to be reminded by people. We've got to look at each other in the face and say, it is still well with my soul. The world is weird. But God is consistent. These people are without Jesus physically. And I know that He's still spiritually with them. But the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And so what do they do? They gather. What else are they going to do? Why do we gather? Why do you come to church? Well, my grandma took me to church. That's not the right, wrong answer. Think. My fear sometimes is in the United States of America, we have found other ways not to need God. Social Security, the Democratic Republic, the state of Texas, our value system, the morals that we expand to our children. We have set up everything we need so we don't need God. And I think, in my opinion, this is Mark's opinion, boop, 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 I think it's the reason we only pray at the beginning and end of our meetings. Because I think we get together and we have great ideas and we have the smartest people in the world and they're usually our good ideas. But we kind of do it without God a lot of the time. The church I grew up with believed that if you had more information about God, you got better. You just got more arrogant. It didn't make you more submissive to God. More theological knowledge doesn't make you more surrendered or broken. It, it just makes you smarter. And smart people struggle with sin too. The thing that makes you God or, uh, God's man or woman is humility, not knowledge. Knowledge is an important part of it, but it ain't everything. These guys gathered out of desperation. What did they do? They prayed. It says they were constantly united in prayer. This will be a theme throughout the book of Acts. It's really a book of prayer, of dependence on God. The church turned over and over to God to pray. And why wouldn't they? Prayer is not about... Now look, I know there's a lot of good books on prayer. People hand them to me regularly. But if I'm desperate for God, why do I need to read a book on how to talk to Him? Why don't you hand me a book on talking to my wife? As some of you have. <laughs> uh, um, I mean... I want you to think about it. Can we, just, can we just take the complexity of the church out for a moment? The reason they gathered regularly is because they had Jesus in common. The reason they prayed is because they still needed Him. 
God, what do we do now? How long do we have to wait? Peter, why don't you pray about that? Nathaniel, why don't you pray about that? Dear Lord, we're wondering when this gift is coming. They didn't know what the gift was. They knew it was the Holy Spirit, but they had no idea what it would look like. No idea. And ironically, it looked like a tongue of fire <laughs> and a lot of wind sound. They had no idea what it was going to be, but they knew that they were to wait. They had been told by Jesus on multiple occasions. They had been told by angels to go and wait. So they're waiting. What do they do while they wait? They gather. Why not? We're all waiting for the same thing. And the second thing is they still talk to Jesus. They still cry out to Him. And what do they pray for in Acts? In Acts chapter 1, they pray for direction. In Acts 2, 3, 4, and 6, they pray for, uh, for courage as they witness for Christ. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen prayed as he's being martyred that God would forgive his martyrs. In Acts chapter 8, Peter and John pray for the Samaritans that they don't like. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus pray to be, prays to be saved. In Acts chapter 9, Peter prays for God's power as he raised a dead woman back to life. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius the Gentile prays that God would show him how to be saved. In Acts chapter 10, Peter prays for direction to God. As God more direction as God instructs him to go to a, a guy named Cornelius who is a Roman who he doesn't want to go to. Peter in prison and prays in Acts chapter 12. The believers in John Mark's house pray that God would protect Peter and release him from prison. Before sending out Barnabas uh, and Paul in Acts 13 and 14, the church, church of Antioch fasted and prayed for his ministry. Lydia was saved at a prayer meeting in Acts 16. In Acts 16 also, prison bars were opened because of a prayer meeting in Philippi. Before leaving his friends in Acts 20, Paul prays for them. In Acts 27, when it looked like they would all perish in the midst of a storm, Paul prays that God would bless them. In Acts 28, after the storm, Paul prays that God would heal a sick man. Prayer isn't something they did because that was part of their activity. Prayer is their contact with Jesus. It was their connecting to the Holy Spirit who was empowering them that, that we heard about last week in Chad's message. It was talking to Jesus who had gone before them that Zach taught us about. It was talking to the Father who's in control of all things. It was communicating with the Trinity that while Jesus was gone and they couldn't tap Him on the shoulder, they could still get on their face and talk to Him. Stop reading books on prayer and pray. The problem with the church today is not that we don't have enough information on prayer. It's that we do everything but pray. And it doesn't have to be a close-eyed, hand-folding thing. You don't have to stamp the envelope with amen. Just talk to him. Talk to him as you walk into your boss's office as you're about to be fired. Talk to him as you're walking into a job interview. Talk to him as you go into the grocery store and the person in front of you in line stinks. Pray for compassion and mercy and empathy. Pray for your meal. And you don't have to go, Dear God, as we stand in Applebee's today... Don't do that. D.L. Moody, one of my heroes, I talk about him all the time, was in Europe traveling on this trip that I, I told you about a while before, and he went into a church, and, and after this big rally he had had, this Baptist church put on a dinner for him, and they were in the basement of the church. He's about to eat, and the deacon stands up, and this was his chance to pray before D.L. Moody, and he went on and on and on and on and on. And it was a beautiful prayer. Dearest Heavenly Fall, and he prayed. And about a two minutes into it, history tells us that D.L. Moody stood up and said, Deacon Smith, we thank you for your lovely prayer, but would you mind if we eat while you finish? <laughs> the problem with the way we pray today is it's a show. Even sometimes when we pray publicly, it's instructive. Prayer is me talking to God, not you pretending to talk to God. 
When I pray, I'm not teaching my wife. I'm talking to God. And look at what we've done with it. We've turned it. Here's my opportunity. I, got, I had the privilege of praying before the Senate of the state of Texas a few years back. That's when I became a real Texan. And uh, it was awesome. But I got to tell you, there was enormous amount of pressure in my flesh to come up with a life-changing prayer. Do you know they've never asked me back? I don't think they cared about my prayer. And then I realized I was supposed to be talking to God anyway. Who cares what they think? You're getting this, right? The reason they gathered is because what else were they going to do? This is the one group of people they have something in common with, and it wasn't wealth or, or life experience. It was Jesus. And why did they pray when they gathered? Well, what else are they going to do? Jesus is still in charge. They still need direction. They still need guidance. God is their constant they're unchanging. Back to Acts 1.15. So one of these occasions, 120 were up there, and they had just finished praying. And during this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. I love this. It must have been quiet after praying. I'm assuming this. I imagine everybody was thinking the same thing at each meeting, even if no one said it. Okay, what do we do now? What's it going to look like when this Holy One comes and the, the gift is given? Well, at one of these meetings, after their prayer, it's quiet and Peter takes his post. You remember that Peter was told by Jesus to feed the sheep. Peter becomes the leader among equals. He's not in charge. Jesus is in charge of his church, of his apostles. This wasn't his group, but he was tasked with ministering to them. For those of you who are not aware, and we'll learn this later in Acts, Peter becomes the apostle to the Jews. Paul becomes predominantly the apostle to the Gentiles. And they'll talk about that. To each other, they'll talk about it and we'll study it. They were called to different tasks by the Lord. But Peter becomes the leader among equals in that elder council we call the apostles. So he stands up and he speaks to God's flock. I just, again, as I was, as I was thinking about this this week, how merciful is our God? You realize that 45 days before this, he denied that he even knew him, right? You realize that every one of the disciples knew that, or the apostles. You're sure, in case you're not clear, all the 120 were aware of who Peter really was. But God had called him to a task. And so he takes it. So Peter speaks to God's flock of 120 in the upper room, Acts 1.16. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided, uh, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Okay, so take a breath again. This is Mark. This is a Markism, reading between the lines. Now you know what was on all their minds. You see, everybody has an elephant in the room. You'll have one at Thanksgiving. It'll be your drunken aunt who shows up an hour and a half late. There's always an elephant in the room. Well, there was an elephant in the room with them. So what does Peter do? He talks about him. Let's, let's get this out about Judas. So he discusses him. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David, verse 17. Judas was one of us, and he shared in the ministry with us. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery, falling headfirst there. His body split open, spilling out his intestines. Okay, thank you, Peter. You've always been a little bit too much information. The news of his death spread to all people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akadama, which means field of blood. Verse 20, Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, Let someone else take his place. Now, okay, side note, sidebar, 
Before we get into what Peter is going for here, I want to point out what Peter does. Now, I want to remind you that Peter, during Jesus' ministry, Peter 1.0, Peter 1.0 is a do-it-yourself kind of guy. He's the one that keeps rebuking Jesus for preaching messages that are discouraging to the crowds. He was a, I've got this figured out, Jesus, I don't need your help kind of guy. Now, all of a sudden, he has something he wants to say, something that he believes God wants him to do. And what does he do? He takes him to Scripture. That models for us where we find direction. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I want you to look at this again. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people for every good work. I love this. Louise, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. And I want you to put Psalm 119.105 up there, please. It's the verse right ahead of this. Here's why. Because Peter is quoting David. Every Hebrew loves David. David wrote the Psalms not just to glorify God, but also, you may or may not know this, but Psalm 119 was written with the specific purpose of teaching Solomon, his son, the Hebrew language. So it's super long, and in Hebrew, it's got the whole Hebrew alphabet in it. But within there, it's a little bit like a small book of Proverbs. David is sharing golden nuggets of wisdom with his son. And here's one of them. Your lamp, O God, is a lamp to guide my feet and light for my path. So if, Dave, or if, Paul, or if Peter goes to David, David is now saying, God's word is the lamp to my feet. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I just read for you, says that Scripture is valuable to give us guidance and direction. And the very next verses, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I want to remind you what the exhortation to pastors is who lead churches. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. In other words, it's not the world that's going to judge your ministry, young Timothy. It's God. Preach the word of God. Inside of that, and in other places in Timothy, it's not just use a verse and talk about it. It is within its context. The scriptural mandate for a shepherd is to rightfully divide the word of truth. That means you don't preach on a theme and take a verse and talk about that verse. And even if everybody in the church agrees with it, that is not the task of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. You are to patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. For they will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God is giving you. That is what Peter 2.0 is doing. Peter 2.0 is using Scripture to explain away something that blew their minds. One of the twelve was a turncoat. And he says, David, we should have known this. David talked about it. Pastors, I understand that there's a lot of pressure to sell your church to create growth. That is not your task. Even if your church dies. And boy, does that scare me to death. Your job is to pre rightfully divide the word of truth and preach the word in and out of season. Member, family, believer, follower of God, online and in this room. Do not seek a church that meets your needs. Seek a church that preaches the truth. Satan will sue you for peace. 
He will sue you for peace. And the goal of the church is not to meet all your needs. The goal of the church is to talk to God together, to encourage each other, and where there's a hole, you jump in. I am so tired of hearing about people leaving churches because they don't get everything they want. That is satanic. It is unbelievable how shallow our commitment to each other has become. How can we ever confess our sins to each other if we don't withstand the whims of our life? They gathered out of desperation. They gathered out of oneness in Christ. They gathered to pray for each other and to talk to the one who led them and guided them. I actually think that one of the reasons God is not going to take us back to normal is because why would he ever want to? We weren't doing that good before, to be honest with you guys. We might have been filling churches, but with what? Right now at home, you have to decide what you're going to do with your worship. In this room, you're going to have to decide what to do with God. It's weird. I was talking with uh, Pastor Kevin this morning, Hudson, uh, chairman of our elder board. He's going, he and Pam, are, are, is Pam going with you in December? No, so he's on the board at Amazon Outreach that we are very involved with. And they're taking their first boat trip down the Amazon, which wasn't even loud till recently, uh, in December. And we were laughing a little bit because he's going, the executive director is going, because they have no idea what they're going to face. I mean, they think it'll be fine, but they're going in case decisions have to be made. That's ministry. It's supposed to be unknowing. We're supposed to set a path that we don't know how it concludes. We don't do ministry so it'll grow. We do ministry so people will grow. It's God-centered, not man. What have we done? We're not a political action committee. We're not here to sustain the United States of America. We are here to introduce people to Jesus so when they die, they go home. We are here to raise our kids to be mighty warriors for the king. The crazy thing about this text. Okay, so let's, let's pick it up. So, <laughs> this is funny. So, Peter gets up and he talks. He says, David said this. And, and he ended it with, so, David also said, we need to pick another. So, verse 20, Peter c- continues. This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let, us, let his, uh, this, his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So David, David goes, okay, so here's what we got to do. Let us now choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who are with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as the witness of, of Jesus' resurrection. Okay, there's a lot in here that we're going to come back to later on what an apostle is. It tells us, number one, he was with Jesus most of his ministry and he watched him die be buried, and resurrect. So that's a requirement to be an apostle. Number two, the job, uh, why is that so important? Because this apostle was to be a witness, a physical, visual witness of the resurrection of Jesus. So they nominated two men, Joseph called uh, Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. It's another clue that he's in hell. Then they cast lots, 
And Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. So after making his case from Scripture, Peter instructs that they are to find a replacement apostle for Judas, which is an office in the New Testament. And like I said, we'll talk more about that later. Here's the crazy thing about that text. If we were to go sit in a Bible class today or a seminary class, what the class would be all about is whether or not they made a mistake. Half of theologians that you and I would love, would respect, believe that he overstepped by choosing another person that Paul should have been the next chosen by God by his supernatural power. The other half think, oh, it doesn't say that, so leave it alone. And it really doesn't matter which is right. There's no evidence for either except they chose him. But the point that I thought about this week is sometimes we as men and women of God and leaders go out on our own. We take scripture and we think God's telling us to do something and so we do it and we make a mistake. But I want to point out that God never either endorses him or doesn't endorse him. They cast lots. I want to say that over the last year, lots of decisions have been made at Carpenter's Way and at Harmony Hill and at Timber Creek and at every church in this community. In California, there are churches that are meeting in, in, uh, in uh, high school football gymnasiums or outdoors in football stadiums. There are, you know, John MacArthur's meeting anyway. Lots of decisions being made, and they, some of them seem to be diametrically opposed. Can I be clear that God isn't interested in the decisions we made? He's interested in the condition of our heart. I am so thankful for an elder board that's a 90 percenters. They make 90% of right decisions. The other 10, they're in disagreement with me, but they have the right to be wrong. I mean, lighten up. The truth is I've made lots of dumb statements from the pulpit. We do stupid things, and God still uses us. I think I've told you before that my brother shared with me when I got ordained. He said, I have one thing that God has put on my mind for you. Number one, God used an ass in the Old Testament, so I guess he'll use one in the New. I don't think it's funny at all. I still don't understand it. But you get it, right? I mean, as I'm looking at this, as a guy who's been to seminary and Bible school, I'm going, oh man, I remember all those discussions. Nobody knows. But what's really cool is God doesn't go, oh no, you screwed up. Everybody's got an an idea right now when the Lord's going to return. You know the one person who's not worried about that? The Lord. He's not worried about it. Because God knows when it's going to happen. He's not worried about what we think about it. All he wants is us to be faithful. His instructions for us were not to figure out COVID and, and, and program the church perfectly through it. His plan for us was not to grow the church numerically during it. His plan for us was to point people to Jesus and encourage you to be radically committed to him. So much so that out there it's empty and dry and tiresome, but in here there's hope. If you don't walk into church and find hope, there's something broken. It could be you spiritually, and that's called conviction. It could be that the church is focused on the wrong thing. But the reason these people gathered was not because they wanted to start a program that would one day turn into the church, but because they had no other options. And I love the fact that they might have done it wrong. I don't know. But God doesn't seem to care. He doesn't send an angel down from heaven going, hey, silly, knock it off. He doesn't. He just lets them make decisions. What's been really amazing over the last six months, and let's get personal now about Carpenter's Way. I mean, I was worried. Uh, I, I knew that we were going to buy some chairs probably this year. And I, I, was, I, wor- I over-worry. You can ask anybody, especially Steve Hicks, who takes care of the facility. But I was worried about how we were going to get those chairs in here and the other chairs out without interrupting all of our programming. You know what God did? He sent COVID so we didn't have any programming. It's my fault my fault. Sorry. 
So many things have happened. We got, to, we got to do so much work on this building during that time and didn't have to shut it down. We, with elders, when we started talking about the bathrooms being done, we were concerned with what are we going to do with bathrooms? How are we going to... People have to go because you preach so long. That's the word I got. <laughs> God worked it all out, doesn't he? It just happens. It works out. You know, we got to support missionaries. I think it's almost $50,000 more this year than we had in the previous years. Why? Because we didn't get to go. It's a bummer that we didn't get to go. But God does stuff. He never loses. Do you realize that? He never loses. Ever. Never, ever, ever. What about during World War II when all the Jews were killed? He never loses. Never, ever. Well, then he's arbitrary and I don't want to worship him. That is your choice. How are you doing with your life? Church isn't supposed to be perfect with hired people and it's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to be messy. Never ever go to a church that offers you everything they want. They don't need you. I would love to have $10 billion in the bank and never take another offering, but do you have any idea how bad that would be for the ministry of Mark Wilkie? There's something real filtering about remembering that I serve you. You know what I'm talking about. If you run hard after the world and the things in it, like politics or country, that is the most you'll ever get. But if you run hard after God, you get everything. Even if for a while you have nothing. You just don't see what you have. We have all spiritual things already. The reason they gathered is because they knew that. They had seen Him resurrect. They had seen Him ascend. They put all their hope in Him. Where have we put our hope? This is what I'm praying. I do believe that, and it's just my thought, I believe that, that this last year has caused a reset to the church in America in many, many ways. I don't know what church looks like in the future. I mean, there's, there's a lot of you here this morning, but not as many. I, I'll put numbers to it. Uh, I think on, on an average before this started, we would average 450 to 550 on a Sunday morning, probably more like 450 to 500. Right now, we're running around 200 in this room. A lot of you are watching online, and I'm not, the elder, one of the things the elders said this week is let's not dog those who are at risk. We're not here to push you to come back in this building. I do want you to have fellowship with people, so put masks on and have coffee with people. You need that, believers. But our goal isn't to get you back in the building. And I don't know what this looks like in a year. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe half the church is online from now on. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. What I do know is that we want to feed you, and my prayer for our church is not that we fill the room, although that would be nice. It would be good for my ego. But my prayer for us is that we go hard after God. Not hard after better ministry, programming, people, hard after God. So hard after God that we're exhausted out there and we come in here to go, okay, those are God's people. Where the question is, why, why wouldn't we meet? I, I can't help but meet. I miss meeting when we don't meet. That's my prayer for Carpenter's Way 3.0. Carpenter's Way 1.0 was the 10 years, 15 years, before, uh, it was more than that, 20 years or something before we came. 
Carpenter's Way 2.0's last 15 years. Now we're heading 3.0. And here's how you do that. Here's how we accomplish that goal. You don't worry about us. You go hard after God yourself. If every one of us goes hard after God, we will be a church who goes hard after God. It never, ever, ever starts at the top and works its way down. It starts at the bottom and works its way up. If you want a church that's committed to Jesus Christ, be committed to Jesus Christ. That's what they were. And in a few weeks, you're going to find out just how screwed up they really were. Nancy Hicks and I were talking before the service, and she's, I'm going to pick on you, Nancy, okay? It's not picking on you, but I'm going to out you. She said, I'm, there's just so much. She said, it's, just, it's kind of a depressing book, the book of Acts, because she's been reviewing for it in our study. She said, they're so messed up. <laughs> yeah. We always prayed as kids, make us like the New Testament church. We're way more like her than we thought. Dear God, help us to be more than they ever were. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your word. It guides us, it directs us, it centers us, it, uh, it's a plumb line. It's a springboard with which we can hear the Holy Spirit speaking, guiding, and directing our lives. And I ask you, Father, I ask you, Father, to help us go hard after you. And as a result of that, change this church. I pray that we gather like the New Testament church because that's what they did. Not because that's what they were supposed to do, but because that's what they had to do. And now, oh Lord, thank you for this beautiful fall weather in East Texas. And as we move on through a political season, may we be first seekers of God and His kingdom, and second, seekers of a great nation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful day. If you're interested in the Bible study Zach and I are doing, email me and I will send you an invite.